You know, it's hard to imagine how it must have been in those early days uh, after the resurrection of Jesus to, to think about what might possibly have been going on, you know, to try and sort out how that could possibly be true. Uh, and then Mark's gospel, we kind of pointed this out last week a little bit, uh, how it ended in such an unusual way because it, it uh, in Mark's gospel, you don't get that opportunity really to find out exactly what was going on because... As you know, it, it ends with the statement that the ladies there, they left and, and they were in fact frightened, that they were afraid, that they were silent. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 16 and verse number 9 there. But you know, somehow, somewhere along the line, it, I think it became apparent that um, in the construction of the Gospels, that Mark's Gospel in particular... Uh, that that ending was, it really wasn't very satisfying and, and, and that the early church that, that collected the writings of the scripture wanted to finish it somehow. And, you know, they wanted it to say something different than what was being said. And so as a result, there's, a, there's actually a number of different endings to, to Mark's gospel. They come in short little ver versions, one or two verses to actually this very long version that... that um, we have in most of our Bibles the ones that are in front of you from verses 9 down to verse number 20. And In fact, you, most of you um, might have this in your Bibles, some kind of a note, some kind of a, uh, maybe a footnote of some sort, uh, some kind of a statement in between verses 8 and verses 9 that says something like this, that, that the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And, you know, uh, to be honest with you, there is a lot of evidence for the fact that that wasn't in the original manuscripts. In the first place, the, the key major manuscripts, they don't include verses 9 through 20. The early church fathers actually appeared to know nothing about them. And, and actually, a little bit later in the history of the church, some of the chief historians like Eusebius and, and Jerome suggest that this didn't exist in the early manuscripts. And... And yet I think about that, it's really intriguing, I think, to note that note what really is in those verses, in verses 9 through 20, which they really are pretty typical kinds of comments that we find made in other Gospels. In fact, if you read verses 9 through 20, it sounds, well, here's what it sounds like. Take a look with me, if you would. Verses 9 through 20 of Mark chapter 16, it says, When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, that he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Uh, she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the leaven as they were eating he rebuked them for their lack of faith and for their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel, or the good news, to, the, to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick, pick up snakes with their hands, 
and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. You know, you could walk right down through this passage here and just earmark other places where some of the, where the, where the things that we just read uh, uh, happen to be. So, for example, if you look at verses 9 and 10, those actually show up in John chapter 20. If you look at verses 11 and 12 and 13, we would find them in Luke chapter 24. Um, verse 14 is also in Luke 24, but it's also in John chapter 20. There is a piece of verse number 14 that's it's just a little bit unusual, and it may be referred to in John chapter 20, but maybe not. Um, verse number 15 is obviously the same as Matthew chapter 28 and Luke chapter 24. Verse 19 is the same as Luke chapter 24. And then that stuff in the middle, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, all of it except for the drinking of poison, which you know, shows up in, 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 in the book of, all, uh, book of Acts, all of it very clearly as the experience of, in fact, the early church. And so there's, there's nothing unusual about what is what's in this particular text, really. What's unusual about it is that it wasn't there to begin with. But it's intriguing, it's, uh, you know, because I, I think that what this says to us, I think that what it can tell us is that, first of all, you can have a great deal of confidence in the Word of God. You can have a confidence in God's Scripture. That you, you can have that because the, these stories are all repeated in other places. But second of all, I think that the early church wanted, we can know that the early church wanted to make sure that there were, there were some things that they just didn't want us to miss. And so lest we not get all of the story, we're not going to let this end at verse number 8 with silence. I believe that that's the way that Mark's gospel originally would have ended, with them being afraid. Uh, they're standing there, and, and, and it, it makes sense that way. But, but, but we're going to go ahead, and we're not going to let it end with science. We're, silence. We're going to go ahead, and we're going to carry this message one step further, consistent with what the rest of the church, the early church, believed. Because here's what I think that the early church would encourage, encourage us with. I think that they would encourage us with this. Number one, that we should believe based on the testimony. You heard how clearly uh, whoever wrote verses 9 through 20 identified with the rest of Mark's gospel that sense of lacking belief. You've got Mary Magdalene and that story, but then they still wouldn't believe, right? You've got the story there of the two men on the road and, and uh, assuming that that's the two men on the road to Emmaus, but they still didn't believe uh, you have Jesus then um, rebuking his disciples for their lack of belief. Uh, there's a sense in which they understood, you know, having been written here 20 years after the death of Jesus, that most people would have never had the opportunity to see the resurrected Christ. That's the only way that they would have ever come to faith 
was based on testimony. It was the only thing that they would have ever had. It's almost as if they, they understood something that you and I understand, that, 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 if, that, if, that if I want to come to faith in Jesus, if I want to believe in Jesus, it's not going to be because of what I've seen. It's, it's going to be because of the testimony of other people, of the scriptures themselves, of the historians, of the life of people. I'm, I'm obligated to believe what I cannot see, based merely upon the testimony of what other people have said. And you know how hard that is, right? Well, you saw how hard it is. Even when you see it, it's just hard to believe. And when you, when you just have to trust somebody else, it, it, I think it gets more difficult. And I, I think that they would at least tell us, the early church would encourage us with, that we should believe based upon testimony. I think that they would also tell us this, that we should be baptized in spite of the cost. But you notice that emphasis, don't you, in verses 15 and 16. He says, go into all the world and, and preach the good news. To all of creation, he says, whoever is, believes and is baptized will be saved. He says, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I, I just think it's the odd command of Scripture, don't you? That, that so many people in the 21st century, in the 20th century, of the 19th centuries previously, that they have stumbled over this. You know, why in the world would God ask us to be dunked into water in order to identify with His Son, Jesus? And the answer to that is this. I mean, I don't have a clue. I really don't. I mean, He just decided that that's what we ought to do. And I suppose that he could have chosen a lot of other symbols. I mean, it's just that that, that symbol makes a lot of sense. And because it is so clearly ties us to the resurrection of Jesus. You know, you look at Romans chapter 6. It, it so clearly ties us to that resurrection, that, that death, burial experience that he's had. But, I mean, you think about it. I mean, it's just, it's a humiliating thing, sort of, you know. Typically, when we have a baptism, we're, 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 you're asked to stand up in front of everybody. You know, I mean, it's a public thing, right? And then you're told, well, I want to stick you down in the water, and I want to bring you back up out of that water, and all of a sudden you're, you look and your hair is going to be a mess, right? And, and your clothes are going to be wet, and you're going to look like you just came out of the shower. And I want you to do that in spite of the fact that people are going to, you know, they're going to go, what's the matter with you? It, it just kind of makes that experience such a powerful public statement. You know, I, I believe so thoroughly in Jesus, I will do whatever he says in spite of, the, of what it costs me because what that marks is, well, you know, I can't go back now. Everybody now knows. See, faith in the heart is pretty easy to hide, Right? If you want to hide faith in the heart, you can do it. Baptism in water, that's pretty easy to not hide. I mean, the New Testament teaches that that experience marks us as of having made this remarkable decision, and, and now we're going to carry that out into the future, and we're not going to hide that from anybody. Well, I, I think that those early church people who understood, you know, in that era of persecution, you ever think about that? 
I think that they understood how costly that could have been. You know, have, you know, that they, I think that those early church people, they, they have said in this latter part of Mark's gospel that in spite of what it cost, you still ought to do this. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's, it's already out there, and, and they've made that commitment. I think that they would tell us that. I think that they would tell us that we believe based on te testimony. I think that they would tell us that we're baptized in spite of the cost. I think they would also tell us this, that we should expect some great things from God. We should expect great things from God. I, I, I don't know what all that implies for the, for, for the church of today. There, there are all these signs that cer certainly accompany the early church. All, all you have to do is just read the book of Acts and, and you see people raised from the dead. You see people healed. You see people, you know, the shadow of one apostle that brings healing. You see, the, you know, the handkerchief of, a, of another apostle that brings healing. Uh, the apostle Paul bitten by a, a snake that was poisonous and it, it just didn't seem to bother him. The, the ability to, to move from culture to culture and, and to speak a language that they didn't understand. And there's all these kinds of signs that followed the early church. Now, they, those were never intended to be a checklist, right? You know, that somehow if you didn't experience these signs, that somehow you're not a real Christian. In spite of our friends maybe in Appalachia who still think that in order to have a real church service... You know, you have to be uh, handling some of those poisonous snakes. Get on, get on uh, YouTube and check out some of the videos on that, right? But that's not what this is about. Any more than any other sign is required of anyone. But what it does say is that when God is involved, that you can expect some absolutely remarkable things to happen. Now, it may not be something so visible as a miracle. It may be just that your life has been absolutely, radically transformed and you just can't explain it in any other way other than what happened in Jesus Christ. Right? But the early church would say, trust us on this one. When Jesus comes into the picture, some remarkable things happen. I think that they would tell us this as well. I think that they would tell us that we should preach the gospel to the whole world. The good news. Go into all the world, he said, and preach. That everyone in the church becomes an evangelist. See, that command was not given just to a limited few. That was given to for all the church to go into the world, for you and me. It's not just my job to make disciples. It's, it's your job as, as well. It's, it's our job. It's, it's, it's your job as much as, as it is anybody else's job to be able to take the gospel to another generation of people uh, simply by sharing what God has commissioned in, this, in His Word for us to know, that unchanging Word. Helmut Thielke um, made this comment. I'm, I'm fascinated by this statement, really. He said, the gospel must be preached afresh and told in new ways to every generation since every ge generation has its own questions. The gospel must constantly be forwarded to a new address because the recipient is repeatedly changing his place of residence. I didn't put that up there, did I? 
He's not talking about ge geographical movies, by the way. <laughs> He's talking about the fact that every generation comes along and has a new way of thinking that requires for the gospel to be shaped and to be couched in new terms. By the way, Helmut Thielke, he preached in the 1940s right after World War II. But the truth that he said is, I think, still the same, that the whole world needs to hear and that every generation needs the gospel shared in a way that makes sense to them. And so that, I think, should be a reminder to us that, that, that we don't do things the same way that we did maybe 20 years ago because this is a new generation. And, and, and it won't be the same 10 years from now either. Because it will be a new generation that needs the same message that's cast in a new shape so that they have the opportunity to hear and to understand what you and I have had the privilege of hearing and understanding. This story comes out of the mid-1990s in New York City. And um, in fact, uh, a section of New York City where it was identified as the most likely place for people to get killed. The preacher's name is Bill Wilson, and uh, he was stabbed twice. He was shot at, and he had a num member of his ministry team that was killed. They did a children's ministry off of the streets of the New York there, and they ran 50 buses to gather kids for an after-school program and weekend programs. And in their church service, they had a Puerto Rican woman who had uh, become a Christian, and she, she didn't speak English, and, but even though she didn't, she, didn't uh, she said to this preacher, she says, I want to do something. I want to do something, and I want to be able to be involved, so what do I do? And he says, I don't know what you, what, what you can do. I, I don't know. She says, well, I want to do something. Give me something to do. And so he said, okay, all right. You, every week I want you to ride a bus, and I want you to just love one of those kids on that bus. And so she would. That's what she did. Saturday and Sunday, whatever day it was, she would get on that bus and she'd pick a child and she would sit by that child and, you know, the one that looked maybe the most needy and she would sit by that child and the only thing that she knew how to say was, I love you and Jesus loves you. That was her English vocabulary, you know, and so she would love that kid on the bus and she'd say, I love you and Jesus loves you. And, and then pretty soon she found one little scraggly kid on one of the buses and, and uh, this kid wouldn't talk and she said to the preacher, you know what, I don't want to ride any other bus. I just want to ride this one. And so week after week, she sat next to this little boy, and she rode, and she would say to him over and over and over again, I love you, and Jesus loves you. <coughs> on 2.30, on the 2.30 afternoon bus ride home one day, this little boy, for the very first time, he turned around and he said, I love you too. And he gave her a big hug. And at 6.30 that afternoon, they found his body in a trash bag. His mother had killed him and thrown him into one of the trash bins. And so far as we know, the last little words that that little boy heard were these words, Jesus loves you. That's our job, right? And the early church would remind us that that is our task, is to make sure that there are no little boys or no little girls in this town 
who do not know who Jesus is and who do not know that Jesus loves them. You don't have to know much to be able to say that much. Jesus loves you. And so we're, we're, we all become evangelists to the world to, to say what we, what we can't show them, to, to simply give them the testimony that Jesus is raised from the dead and that he loves us. Well, what, what would those early church people tell us if they had a chance to tell us something? I think that they would tell us this. Trust Jesus and do what he says. Trust Jesus and do what he says. Trust Jesus and do what he says. Mark's gospel is interesting to me because it seems like it finishes in this sense of, you know, kind of unfinished business. You know, the ladies went up there and they, and they, and they, they left because they were afraid. And, it, you know, the women, they go away. They're silent. They're afraid. And I don't know how long it took for them for that fear to go away. But this much I do know, by the second chapter of the book of Acts, by the time that that rolls around and the Holy Spirit has come, they are no longer silent and they are no longer afraid and they are now preaching a word that makes a difference in the world. And the message is exactly that message, isn't it? Trust Jesus and do what he says. And so my question this morning to all of us is this. It's really, really simple. What unfinished business do you have? What unfinished business is there between you and the Lord? And, you know, what is it that's hanging out there and just waiting for you to do? You know, is it a person that you need to talk to? Is it a decision that you need to make, you know, to need, about your life? Is it, is it identifying with Jesus in Christian baptism? Is it, is it making yourself available to make that difference? What's the unfinished business that you need to resolve this morning. We all have decisions to make. Every single week, every Sunday that we come here, we have some decisions that we need to make in order to help us to draw closer to Jesus. And my prayer is that we don't leave with unfinished business, that we would trust Him, and that we would do what He says. Let's pray together. It is so sweet, Father, to trust in Jesus, just to trust him at his word, to take him at his word. Father, the resurrection is something that makes such a powerful statement to our world. And Father, I pray that for each and every one of us that we would live that every day, that every day that our lives would just be an echo, would be a testimony of the truth of your word, the truth of your resurrection, of the truth of Jesus alive in this world. And God, I just pray that you would continue to help us to grow closer and closer to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.